Hello, my friends. Welcome, welcome. This is a mini immersion series where I'm going to take questions from our honorable students here at Praiseon. We've got a number of things we're going to talk about. And the first thing we're going to talk about in this series, this very, very quick series, we're going to talk about the concept of change management. We're going to talk about the concept of change requests. This is very important for your exam. And the reason is this. Your exam is filled with situational problems about change management. A change needs to happen. What should you do first? What should you do next? So this is not in the PMBOK guide exactly as I have it, but I want you to go through this process in your head. Think about it like if you were in a business and you were a project manager, where could change come from? Think about it. Can anyone give me some ideas? Where would you get change requests or the question of change? Where would that come from? End user. Thank you, the end user. Very good. It could come from the end user stakeholders. All right. So it's, it starts off on a typical project with them contacting you or them voicing it out in a meeting. And we refer to that as verbal. Hey, Jane, can I have a change to this uh, GUI, the, this interface? I'm not very happy with the color scheme. You just spent two months developing the thing. Now they're asking for a change. Are you going to say, no, no change for you? No, you don't do that. That will be wrong in PMI's world. So you want to be like, okay, let's put it in, into formal writing. So when we, when we talk about formal writing, you folks do know that there's the concept of a change request form. So I want you to really visualize what does a change request form look like? A change request form has got different pieces of information. And you do remember where I always ask you to go. There's always one place I ask you to go. It's a CDC website. So we're going to go to tinyurl.com forward slash sigma PMO. I want to show you the pragmatism of this whole thing. So going in here. We're going to look for change management. There's a change request form. Let's click that. It's going to download. I am going to open it. And I'm going to share my screen so that you get the idea of a change request form. Here we go. And there we have it. Oh, it just enabled me to look at it let's share again and there's a change request form and what is in a change request form right the type of change request the submitter name a brief description of the request the date submitted and other pieces of information that you would expect now we are going into a very important step of our sequence after we have filled in the change request form what happens after that well, we move into a stage where we log it into a change log. So I want to show you what that would look like as well. A change log is pretty much like a log of all the changes that come into the project. Um, some firms uphold this approach and others don't. But going back to the CDC site, you can see change management log. If you click on that, it will open up another example, which I will show you momentarily. 
So here's an example of what the change log is all about right there, all right? So there's a change log. We can see the change request description, but we can also see the ID. And this shows you that every change request that comes in is logged at a high level in environments where it could be automated. It would make sense for this to be speaking to every change request that comes in with a particular ID. But in other projects, it's manual, unfortunately. It's not always automated. But you have the change ID, the status, is it open? Is it work in progress? Is it closed? And all of this other helpful pertinent information. It, who is it been assigned to? Expected resolution date, escalation required, action steps, blah, 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 all this stuff. So you got a very robust description of how change uh, requests could be managed in this world of the CDC, which I think every organization should have their own approach, but it's a good benchmark. So after you have logged it in the change log, then we go to this topic of analyze the change request with the project team. And that's when we go back to our change form. And in the form, we have the project manager's initial analysis. Now, this is not just the project manager in isolation. Let's make it clear. This is the PM and the team. The PM is going to assess with the team the hour impact, duration impact, schedule impact for this change. What will the impact be if we go ahead and do it? How much will it cost? Are there any comments? What are the recommendations, if any? And then there's an approval signature, okay? For those watching after the fact, I'm going to endeavor to put a link below to each of these documents just so that you can go back and let it make your understanding more robust. When we are done with analyzing the change request from the project team side, we then send that to the change control board and they do their own analysis. The change control board are gonna review the change request and they are also going to take into account the analysis. What this could look like again, we have a rather detailed form where the change control board works on this same document, right? They put in their decision, whether it's approved, whether it's approved with certain conditions, whether it's rejected or whether they need more information. I'm gonna show you where this more information clause comes into play on our sequence here. So if they review it, and they decide the outcome of the change request, they update the change log, and then the change log is shared with stakeholders, and then the project manager and the team carry out any next steps. But if the change board feels like they need some further discussion with the requester, they could ask for more information or they could even negotiate with the requester. If they have not looped in the customer and the sponsor, they have the opportunity of doing that before looping back in, regardless the disposition, they always got to loop back in, whether the customer says, no, we, we're not going to do that. Or if the sponsor says no, or yes, whatever the case, you got to loop back into this main line of stuff. And that goes back to the form that we were looking at. So let's go back to the form. Here in the form, you can see whether it's going to be approved or approved with conditions, 
or rejected or more information. The decision date, the decision explanation, the conditions, there's a signature, whoever the approving signature is, that all needs to take place. And that takes us to the final step where we realize the outcome. Is it approved? Is it rejected? Is it put on hold? Or is it put into a pending state? And those are the things you need to think about when PMI says manage project changes, task 10 of process. They mean that you need to anticipate and embrace the need for change, but there needs to be this, number two, a strategy to handle change, not just flying by the seat of one's pants, but having a solid thought out sequence, which is what takes us to this, the sequence strategy for how to handle change. A lot of companies, they do woefully in this, but this is a, a map that every company should have tailored to their own needs. So execute the change management strategy based on what I just showed you and determine a change response to move forward. And that takes us to the overarching uh, goal, which is approved, rejected, and hold pending. All right, so that was a very good question and I appreciate you bringing it in. Did that help clarify some of the doubts? And what other questions, follow-on questions are there? Any follow-on questions? No. All right, well, thank you very much, good deal. So that ends the first part of our exploration for today in looking at change requests. The second thing that I wanna talk about as requested by one of our friends goes into the topic of the content outline, but from a process perspective. So if you are taking the exam, the PMP exam, I urge you to look at PMI's content outline for the process domain. They have a number of processes, 17 of them, okay? So it starts off with execute the project with the urgency required to deliver business value, manage communications, assess and manage risk, engage stakeholders, plan and manage budget and resources. Then it goes into plan and manage the schedule. We might as well just say schedule knowledge area because it's everything under that, right? But remember, we also have the agile component. So as you're thinking about this from a predictive standpoint, you also need to think about it from an agile standpoint. Plan and manage quality of products and deliverables, plan and manage scope, integrate project planning activities, manage project changes. We just talked about that in a lot of detail. Plan and manage procurement. Let's move on. Manage project artifacts. So we have page 89 that has a bunch of those artifacts in PMBOK. You got to know those. And then you got to know the regular ones from the world of Agile, product backlog, sprint backlog, just called backlog, as in product backlog, increment, burn up charts, burn down charts, product roadmaps, story maps, all that kind of stuff. Okay, number 13, determine appropriate project methodology and practices. You got to know page 18 and 19 of your Agile practice guide inside out. So am I going to do incremental, iterative, predictive, or Agile? Establish project governance structure. Get comfortable with the word. Know what it means. Governance is the framework 
within which authorities exercise. We talk about things like rules and principles and authority, things like that. Then we go into number 15, manage project issues. Just know there's a difference between issues versus risks. Issues are things that are happening now. Risks are things that could happen. Number 16, ensure knowledge transfer for project continuity. Lessons learned, registers, having the concept of the retrospective and just sharing knowledge openly and asking what is our transition plan? If Phil leaves the project or someone else leaves, how do we continue with all of that knowledge they are carrying away with them? How do we get them to share that knowledge and be proactive in the knowledge sharing? And then number 17 is plan and manage the project or the phase closure or transitions. In other words, how are we gonna close out of our projects? In the world of Agile, it should be very easy for you to close out. You're ready to close at any time. So unlike the world of predictive, where we are you know, having this big old closure dog and pony show, you know, not to begrudge anyone from that world, but it's, it's just different. In the world of Agile, we are able to close at any time. I actually want us to listen to my buddy Roy. He's going to share with us very quickly how you can approach this from an Agile standpoint. Let's just get a very quick dose of Agile for about a minute and a half. Let's go into it. Absolutely. So the first part is that we're doing a lot of these activities throughout the project. So shutting down an Agile project is should be trivial. It, you know, all this work, or at least most of this work should be already done. We're also not doing phases. So it's not just closing down a project. You know, this is all talking about shutting down phases. We don't do phases, right? We're always looking on continuous delivery value, you know, value delivery. So there really are no phases. It's just the next thing we're delivering. There's very little to do at the end of a project or at, uh, in order to, you know, just, you know, dot those I's and cross those T's. Now, there may be some final things that you do want to do, you know, especially when you're talking about procurement, you know, and buttoning up all the financials, that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. But again, you should be doing a lot of that work already along the way. Uh, there can be some value in doing a retrospective for the overall work. Uh, go ahead and do so. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Uh, but again, these should be pretty quick meetings, nothing really that that uh, that onerous. Uh, and don't have massive meetings. They, they generally don't work. So shutting down an Agile project is really pretty simple. It should be pretty close to just pushing the button and saying we're done. That's what we want to get to. But it might take you some time to, to get all of that, to be able to do all those activities throughout the project, right? Yeah, Roy. So let's look at an example. Product owner suddenly gets word that a bunch of things in the product backlog aren't needed and needs to, you know, discontinue work. How, what would that look like if the product owner realized, wow, we got all the value we need? What happens? That's an awesome thing, right? So keep in <laughs> mind that we want to have that mindset that every time we're delivering something, it could be potentially the, the final delivery. Right. Mm. So it's always we are always prepared for shutting down. It, it's sort of like, you know, a, you know, watching a television series series. It's always prepared to be canceled. Right? <laughs> so yes. You just you know think about how you're going to write that, you know, have some conclusion at, the, at every <laughs> delivery so that it feels like this thing is completed and ready to go at all times. So that that means you're always prepared for shutting down. We're always prepared for shutting down. Speaking of shutting down, my computer has a mind of its own. It wouldn't show my buddy Roy's mouth moving, but that, that was funny. So we just went through the 17 different tasks 
17 tasks of the process domain. But I want to ask my friends now, were there any of those 17 tasks as it whizzed by, you're like, wait a minute, Phil, <laughs> I need some more clarity on that task. Is there any task that you want to rapidly go through a little bit more detail on? And, and, I, and if the answer is no, it's okay. But let me allow you speak, or you can chat into the, the chat box, whichever one. Any any concerns? Um, just the um, managing the risk. Good, yeah. good. Okay, let's talk about risk. So let's do a double. Let's do a double take here. I'm going to go over the high level of the task one more time because I know I did it very quick, and then we're going to latch into that risk thing. Okay, as our friend asked for. So very quick. When you're looking at process, if you're ever lost, use this instead, okay? Bookmark this video. And I want you to use this as your benchmark, not, <laughs> not the order that they have it in the outline, because the outline order is not reality. Reality would be this. You first of all determine the methodology, the method, the practice. Then you establish governance before you move forward. Then you begin to integrate planning. You then plan the phase closures, you plan scope, plan schedule, plan budget, plan resources. It's not in quick succession. It's not linear. There's a lot of feedback loops. Think about it. If you want to get your schedule complete, you got to know the resources that have been assigned to the tasks, because based on the resources assigned, that's how you know the duration. So anybody thinking, oh, we do schedule, then we do cost, then we do quality, then we do resources, they don't understand the PMBOK guide. Right from the get-go, we're thinking about resources. Resources, number one, before your schedule is finalized. Before your budget is finalized, you got to think resources. Before you finalize quality, you got to know which resources you got available. And before you finalize the concept of stakeholder, you do need to understand what resources you have or not. So task seven in terms of quality could come into the discussion, but it's not. all of this is not linear. It's close, but it's not. The concept of risk needs to be discussed before you finalize uh, cost. The concept of risk needs to be discussed before you finalize anything like procurement. The concept of procurement needs to be discussed before risk is finalized as well. So at the end of the day, that whole integrate project planning activities task nine, I want to let you know that task nine is not a one-time thing. Let's zoom into task nine very quick. Task nine right over here, right? This is not a one-time thing. It would be foolish to think it is. This is very iterative on a lot of projects. Even on a lot of projects that we deem to be predictive, the way we plan is rolling wave planning. So always remember that, rolling wave planning. All right, let's move on. Task one, now we get to task one. After we've done all those plans and stuff, then we can execute the project with urgency required to deliver business value. But I also want to point out something else that's quirky in the way we have this in the content outline. So when it says plan and manage, it's not just saying plan. Don't lose sight of the and manage because it's like saying planning and executing. Same thing for plan and manage scope. Same thing for plan and manage. So, so these have a double whammy. It's not just planning, planning. It is lumping up planning and executing. And honestly, it's lumping up entire knowledge areas. So just keep your eye on that as you go through the content outline, okay? 
Very important to think like this. All right, moving on, going into uh, task one. After you are now executing with urgency to, to deliver business value, you make sure that there's knowledge transfer, you manage any issues that crop up, you manage project changes, as I showed you previously, you manage project artifacts, you manage communications, and you engage your stakeholders. And hopefully you're gonna to get to the end where you have a win, where you have an outcome that the customer wants to see, okay? Now, moving on to the topic of risk. I want you to think about what risk is. Even though PMI just have two measly little tasks here, it is a lot more than this. It's a fallacy, this is an illusion. It's not just this simple. Assess risk has plan risk management, identify risk, perform qualitative risk analysis, perform quantitative risk analysis and plan risk responses. There are five processes in that first word assess, just so you know, right? And then when we say and manage, there's implement risk responses, and there's monitor risk, so there's two. So this simple statement, assess and manage risk, my goodness, there's a lot in there. So number one, two, three, one, it says determine risk management options. What do you think we mean by options? Can anyone chat into me or explain to me? Like risk management alternatives. Thank you. Okay. Very good. And what would some of those alternatives look like? Good, good. You're in the right zone. Keep going. What would some of those look like? Uh, you mean the, the positive and negative um, risks? That's good. That's a, a good. That's a good start. But let's even go further back. Let's reverse even beyond that positive and negative stuff. Like way back. Go back into the garage. So what are the options? What are the risk? Not the risk response options, but the risk management options. What do you think that's talking about? Um, manage the risk. Like, a... um, like avoidance, mitigation. Go back into the garage. You're too far out. <laughs> I heard something else. Someone said something else. Did I hear Shauna say something? I was going back to be, when you mentioned plan risk management, then you're uh -huh. going to identify risk and perform quantitative risk and qualitative risk. Yeah, all that stuff. So let's go back to the garage. What's the very first option we have in the very first process? Let's talk about options process by process. So you hit the nail on the head, Shauna. Plan risk management, what are our options? What are the kind of options, types of options? What are the options you have in that process? I'm mitigating, so. You're, you're far out of the garage. We're not in the responses yet. We're still in planning risk management. So you know what I want us to do? Because we'll never forget it, having to open Qualitative. the Identifying risk. You're too far in, too far out of the garage, my friends. We gotta get, oh. we, gotta, we gotta reverse back in. Come on now. <laughs> Now, don't even, don't even pick up the keys. A risk management plan. Now we're talking. So what are the options in that? Risk assessment. Good. Okay. You're, you're getting there. You're getting there. 
So what, so what I want you to do is open with me because I, I really want a deeper understanding of risk and I'm glad we're doing this because it's going to help many others who are too far out of the garage, right? I need you to reverse back in and uh, here we go. So your options in risk management, they start off with how are we going to manage risks on my project? And you know where you can find this? That kind of alluded to it. It's the risk management plan. So let's go to page 405. These are your options. Let's read page 405. It says, the risk management plan is a component of the project management plan that describes how risk management activities will be structured and performed. The risk management plan may include some or all of the following elements. These are your options. One, risk strategy. What is the general approach to managing risk on this project? What do I mean by general approach? Well, a, a general approach, for example, I was in a divestiture project and the general approach is big ticket risk items must be escalated ASAP. Don't even pass go, don't collect 100. Just hit someone on the legal team up and tell them this is a showstopper. It's a strategy. It's an overarching escalate the big ticket items to someone that can take care of it. It's an overarching idea. So that's your risk strategy. Then your risk methodology is getting into the details of the tools, maybe a risk matrix, maybe a risk register and the format. That's the methodology. That's an option. You can choose to have a three field risk register, or you could choose to have a 20 field risk register where you have the cause, the risk, the effect, the risk uh, score, or maybe you got the risk ratings, probability rating, impact rating, risk score, probability in percent, impact in dollars, uh, expected monetary value, risk owner, risk response owner, uh, status of the, you know what I mean? You could blow this up out, but the question is, how far do we want to go? There are options. These are the options. So I, I really want to make it clear when, when PMI just show you determine risk management options, uh, that's loaded because for every process, you have options. You have options on how to manage the risk. You have options even while you identifying the risk. How far do you want to go? Do you want to do cause and risk or do you want to do cause and risk and effect? And then when you're talking about performing qualitative risk analysis, you have options. You could choose to do a qualitative risk analysis by saying um, it's a high impact and high probability, okay? But you can go a step further and say, we're gonna score the risk. So don't just tell me high impact on a scale of one to five, what is the rating? And that is an option that you have in qualitative. Is what I'm saying making sense when I say options, options? And when I say go back into the garage, are you, is it making sense? Yeah. Yes. Good. So you got to think, what are my options in each of these processes? So when you do quantitative, you have an option to use a Monte Carlo. A lot of companies won't even know where to start. A lot of companies don't even need to because the projects they're working on are not that uh, complex or needful of a Monte Carlo. Some, and that's why PMI tells you that in all of the risk processes, quantitative is the optional one. 
which is why a lot of companies don't do it. Some do, I want to say maybe about five to 10% of companies I've trained and I've trained a lot do quantitative. What they do is some form of mental quantitative assessment, but they're not getting into the nitty gritty of probability in percent, impact in dollars, multiply all of those for each of the risks and add them all up, which is still a little bit primitive. Talk less going to a website like Palisade, which has recently been bought. But Palisade, if you go to P-A-L-I-S-A-D-E, you'll see how a Monte Carlo should or could work. You may not need to go that far. These are options. So I, I, I really wanted to blow out that simple statement. It's a loaded gun. Determine risk management options. Before you exam, you're going to know the options. Know the options for every process. When you get to implementing responses, you've got options. You, and you were talking about the options of mitigate, transfer, avoid. Yes, those are also options for response, but you have options for planning, options for identifying. I, I think you get the idea. So the second thing says, iteratively assess and prioritize risk. So what are they saying? They're just saying that you need to go through risk on a regular basis take a look at the cause, the risk and the effect, are they still intact? Take a look at the probability ratings, the impact ratings, the risk score, and then you look at the overall risk register and you're saying, okay, risk number one, it said uh, that we had a risk score of 16. Actually, now that we're further along in the project, we know that, that uh, it's not gonna happen to this degree, the probability and the impact rating, they're gonna come down. And then you get to the point where you may actually have things being zeroed out because this will not happen, cannot happen again on this project. So it becomes null and void, but you as a project manager, you're going through the motions, okay? And you gotta remember this whole topic about risk, there are two perspectives to risk. There's negative risk for this mouse, negative risk is a trap kills it, but there's a positive risk that it gets the cheese. Now, if you're talking about the homeowner, from a negative perspective, the mouse gets the cheese. From a positive perspective, the trap gets the mouse. And then you talk about the strategy. In this case, the mouse is wearing a helmet. That means it's a mitigate. It's trying to reduce the impact of the trap if it goes off. And does the mouse get the cheese? Well, in this example, the mouse did get the cheese. They're quick. So, so those are the things you need to be thinking about. The seven things you do in risk. You plan risk management, identify risk, you perform a qualitative risk analysis, a quantitative risk analysis, then you plan risk responses, you implement the responses, and then you monitor risk. But I wanna call your attention to this snapshot. If you're looking at this, and you have questions, I want to know what are the questions you got? Do you have any questions or concerns looking at this image? And if so, I want to know what they are. Does it make sense? Yes. It makes sense, Phil. Good. Okay. Well, let's move on. So another big thing that people often complain about when they read the PMBOK guide is this thing. And we call it other risk parameters. 
So when we talk about other risk parameters, not that this is big on the exam, but it just helps you to understand that as a good product owner or as a good agilist or as a good project manager, you should be asking the question, probability I know, impact I know, but what other monster is lurking out there? Think about it, risk urgency. There could be a risk that is not as big as another, but it is more urgent. We call that risk urgency. The time period within which a response to the risk is to be implemented in order to be effective. So you've got a medium-sized risk. If you're looking at that risk, you need to ask, when do we need to act on it? Because if you miss that clause of when you need to act on it, guess what's going to happen? You miss it, and then the risk happens, or you try to carry out a response too late, and it doesn't work as well, and there's a big penalty of some sort. That is an example of why you should be aware of urgency. Proximity, the period of time before the risk might have an impact. So you're, you know, heavens forbid, but imagine someone driving on the freeway. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. It's happened to me. But you see things in slow motion. And you can see you didn't have enough reaction time. The proximity, it was too close. High proximity. You don't want the risks that are huge to have a high proximity because that means they're going to hit you. And the likelihood of being hit is high. It says, the period of time before the risk might have an impact on one or more project objectives. A short period indicates high proximity. So you as a risk manager, you're not just thinking in layman probability and impact, you're thinking next level. Urgency, proximity. Have you ever heard about a dormant volcano? Well, what happens when it does erupt? That's a, an example of dormancy. Dormancy is the period of time that may elapse after a risk has occurred before its impact is discovered. So a risk happens and you're like, oh, there's no consequence. Maybe you missed a regulation clause. And before the government gets to it, it takes five years. But when they do, uh-oh, am I, am I ringing a bell or something going on in the news? No, no, forget it, forget it. I'm not being political. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move on. Sorry for those who take offense. Okay, it's just a joke. All right. Let's move on to manageability. Manageability. The ease with which the risk owner can manage the occurrence. That's manageability. You have some risks that are just so tough to manage. Then there's controllability. There's some times when you cannot control the outcome. In that case, we will say that the risk is not controllable. It says the degree to which the risk owner or owning organization is able to control the risk's outcome, where the outcome can be easily controlled, controllability is high. So if you can control a risk by getting insurance, your controllability is high, especially if the insurance isn't that much. Then we have detectability, the ease of detection. Then we have connectivity, the extent to which the risk is connected to other individual project risks where a risk is connected to many other risks, connectivity is high. Those could be very dangerous. And, and this is why you as a, as a risk professional, you need to be looking for more than probability and impact. Probability and impact is baby formula. No, <laughs> next level. So PMI has an exam called the RMP, which I have taken. 
this is the level that RMPs need to be definitely thinking in their real world, you know, as they carry out risk management. Don't just think about probability and impact. Think about, oh, strategic impact. What impact will this have on the organization's strategies, right? Overarching strategies. And then we have this curious one called propinquity. And this is the degree. I hope you're following page 424. It says, the degree to which a risk is perceived to matter by one or more stakeholders. So all of these terms, I'm not saying PMI is going to give you questions about them, no. But these are just good to help you digest the concept of a risk being more than just probability and or impact. And then we have this concept of a risk breakdown structure. My buddy, the risk doctor, he coined this phrase and he put this together. And the PMI have this in chapter 11. And uh, for those risk aficionados, if you haven't subscribed to the Risk Doctor channel, you should because it's the best channel for risk on YouTube, on social media, period. You, you'll learn so much from, from David Hilson, Dr. David Hilson, the Risk Doctor. But one of his inventions is on page 406. And this says, all sources of project risk, you see that as RBS level zero. And then he breaks down risk into technical management, commercial, external. And this could be a good way of you better understanding risk. It's not like what you see on the screen. On the screen, I have a simplified version. But if you go to Pembuck Guide, page 406, the sixth edition, then you can see more detail. Okay. One of the most important things for your exam as far as risk is concerned is understanding your risk strategies. So we're going to look under the hood of that discussion, and we're, we're going to take a little look at risk strategies. There are five. I'm hoping by now you already know this, because this is like my little creation, my mnemonic to help you. And the mnemonic is 18. And who doesn't like Mr. T? He's quite a character. There's Mr. T in his younger years on the A-team, right? So what do I mean by A-team? A-team is just a mnemonic for avoid, transfer, escalate, accept, mitigate. There you have it. It's that simple. If you remember the mnemonic and you train yourself into remembering each item, that's half of the battle. So A, accept. Do nothing. We have two types of accept. We have passive acceptance. That is not doing a single thing. And then we have active acceptance, which is not doing anything proactive other than putting aside a contingency, like money. But think about it. It's like little Bobby could fall down and hurt his crown. Oh, that's fine. Let's not do anything to prevent that. Let's not do anything to reduce that. Let's not remove the mop bucket that's in the way that could cause him to fall. No, we're not doing any of that. Instead, let's put aside $500 so that if he does fall over the mop bucket, we got money that can help him get treatment in the hospital. You see the, the, the folly of it? Why wouldn't you take action? Now, I know it sounds foolish in one sense, but in the other sense, you've got to understand that there are some risks that you cannot do much about. Maybe you're not positioned to do anything about it proactively, or maybe it's such an insignificant risk that it would cost less 
to address it in an active acceptance way, putting a contingency aside. Okay, does that make sense as far as accept is concerned? Yes, absolutely, thank you. Good, good, all right, thank you. All right, let's go to number two, T. T is transfer. The best illustration of transfer is when you transfer the risk to a third party. So there's a risk that there could be a, a wreck or a crash. Well, what does the Department of Transport make you do? They ask you to get insurance. And if you don't have insurance, it's going to be a fine. It's a form of transfer, right? So the responsibility of that risk, if it occurred, is transferred to Allstate. And my friends at Allstate, when I had a wreck, when someone decided he was going to all of a sudden make an exit onto back onto the freeway, not off. He was going on the off ramp and decided to get jump on the freeway in front of me. My reaction time, I saw it happening in slow motion. And then my car did a 180 and was going back backwards and it flew off the embankment. But what happened? Allstate came to the rescue, gave me enough funding to buy a brand new vehicle. That is the power of transfer. If there's no transfer, those people who that has happened to, they're all on their own not a good place to be in. So that's an example of transfer insurance, right? Performance bonds, insurance, that is an example. I once worked for a company where we were doing work for um, an entity, a government entity, and there was a clause in there that we better not be late because if we are, there's going to be penalties. And what's the penalties? Well, before we did the work, we had to purchase uh, these performance bonds. So when you make this performance bonds purchase when the time comes if you're found wanting and your client decides to take those out on you well kiss millions of dollars goodbye or hundreds of thousands of dollars goodbye and that's what happened and uh they they took out those performance bonds and uh, we also lost the contract it was not good but they were covered and they received uh those that that money you know, so that's an example of transfer. Sometimes you just got to cover yourself, especially when you got a vendor, you know, so you often hear license and bonded. <clears throat> and there's a reason why you want the person to be bonded so that if anything goes awry, you can get those performance bonds, right? You can get that money back. And then the next one we have is escalate, escalate to a higher authority. So there's a risk that I've realized that I've seen that could happen, but this risk is not relevant to my project. It's outside the realm of my project. Well, I can escalate it to the program manager or the portfolio manager or the company as a whole. That's one illustration of escalate. But you can also have an example of escalate whereby there's a risk that could happen on your project, but you don't have enough clout to deal with the risk. There are many levels of authority that needs to be in place. In that example, you can escalate it for traction to be made for your project. So this is not the first example that is outside of the realm of my project. No, this is within the realm of your project, but you just don't have enough firepower to make stuff happen. You don't have enough authority. That is where you could escalate as well, okay? So far, so good. Does it, all that stuff that I said make sense so far? Uh, yes, yes it does. I, I have one question, which is, uh, 
escalate and transfer because I know escalate and transfer can somehow be put in a question that can confuse you because escalate is like you're taking it to a higher authority and mm -hmm. transfer is like you're it's kind of like the same thing in a sense. So what's the main difference? Yeah, good question. So in 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 transfer, you're not taking it to a higher authority. You're just taking it to a different entity. So it's not a high authority. Escalate is a high authority. Transfer is a different entity. And the entity owns that risk in terms of the response, whether it's positive or negative. When we talk about Escalate, you're escalating for different purposes. You're escalating because you cannot handle it with your own level of authority, right? Or you're escalating it because it's not in your jurisdiction. It falls into a higher level. Let's actually read a little bit of it. I'll read page 442. It says, escalation is appropriate when the project team or the project sponsor agrees that a threat is outside the scope of the project. When you transfer, it's always within the scope of the project. See? But when you escalate, it's outside the scope of the project. That's one scenario. Or secondly, that the proposed response, even though the risk is within the scope of the project, I added that for clarity, would exceed the project manager's authority. Escalated risks are managed at the program level, portfolio level, or other relevant part of the organization and not on the project level. The project manager determines who should be notified about the threat and communicates the details to that person or part of the organization. It is important that ownership of escalated threats is accepted by the relevant party in the organization. Threats are usually escalated to a level that matches the objectives that would be affected if the threat occurred. Escalated threats are not monitored further by the project team after escalation although they may be recorded in the risk register for information. So the easy way of looking at this whole escalation thing is, ain't nothing I could do about it even if I tried. It's outside my authority or outside my jurisdiction. Transfer, on the other hand, is within your project. And you are gonna be checking to make sure that appropriate action is being taken. Does that help? Yes, thank you. Good deal. Yes, it does. Good deal. Thanks for the question. All right. So now we've covered three sufficiently well. The fourth one, uh, which is avoid, is pretty clear. Avoid is 100% removal of the possibility of the risk occurring. So when we talk about eliminate, it's like you remove any possibility of that risk affecting your project you either bring the impact to zero or you bring the probability to zero. And when you think about the math behind it, probability times impact will end up being zero. Even if the impact could be 100, if you make the probability zero, then it has a zero EMV. And that's the idea behind it. So let's read. Let's think about it. Uh, let me give you an example. There's a risk that a free falling object from the 20th floor could land on a, on a person. Sounds gruesome, I know. It's the best I can do. I'm looking for examples. So there's a chance that this demolition ball comes loose from 
from the chain and falls on someone. How can you avoid that risk? Remove everyone from the area. If there's no one in the area, even though there's a probability the ball could still drop, the impact will be zero because there's no human life that that could impact. That is an example of there's still being a probability, but the impact is zero in the context of that risk. So if we read a little bit here in the Pembok, page 443, it says, risk avoidance is when the project team acts, watch the word, this is a big word, to eliminate the threat. That's a big word. Or protect the project from its impact. You see, so the example I gave shows you how even though there's an impact, there's no one in, in place for it to affect to the degree that we initially thought. So there's probability that it could happen, but in terms of the impact, it's not gonna affect human lives. It says, it may be appropriate for high priority threats with a high probability of occurrence and a large negative impact. See, so they're saying this might be a place where you use the avoid clause where there's a risk with a large negative impact and a high probability of occurrence. It says avoidance may involve changing some aspect of the project management plan or changing the objective that is in jeopardy in order to eliminate the threat entirely. Reducing, watch this, its probability of occurrence to zero. See that? The risk owner may also take actions to isolate the project objectives from the risk's impact if it were to occur. So to, either of two things, either you get rid of probability and impact, or you get rid of the probability altogether, or you get rid of, you reduce the impact to zero. And that's what avoidance is all about, okay? Examples of avoidance actions may include the removing the cause of a threat, extending the schedule, changing the project strategy, or reducing scope. The question is, does that lead to a zero summation of impact or probability? And if the answer is yes, then you've avoided. Some risk can be avoided by clarifying requirements, obtaining information, improving communication, or acquiring expertise. So when you get questions on the PMP exam, whatever exam, CAPM, you need to ask, has probability been reduced to zero? Or has impact been reduced to zero? Because either way, whether you reduce probability to zero or you reduce impact to zero, you have avoided. It doesn't have to be both. Could it be both? It could, but it doesn't have to be. As long as the question has made it clear, you have taken the probability of occurrence to zero. Boom, you avoid it. You have taken the impact of a risk to zero. You've avoided because it's gonna give you a net zero when you multiply probability times impact. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense. Phil, I have a question. So um, for a risk that wasn't identified in the beginning of the project, probably towards like, um, the closing stage of the project, what's the best strategy you can apply? Is it like acceptance? What if it has like high level impact for the end goal of the project? I don't think my question makes sense. Like, no, it does. It does. It does. So you've, you've asked a, a couple of questions. You're saying, what if you realize an overall project risk 
in the dying hours of the project, something that could affect the entire project. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. The best thing for you to do is if you cannot avoid that risk, then the next best step will be to mitigate. If you're not able to mitigate it, then look for some action, but don't accept it. Look for some measure of action. Don't be a react. So a reactive PM will be like, oh, can't do anything. No, you got to do something. So if you cannot avoid, then the next line of action would be to mitigate. Next line of action could be to transfer as well. So you got to look at what is happening, you know, and if it's something outside of the project, then escalate it. But don't do nothing. Doing nothing is the worst. Yeah. Now, if you get a question that says there's a risk with a very, very small impact, you might just accept it. It depends. So you have to read the question for more context. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Great question. Now, it's funny because I thought your question was going in a different direction because this used to be a trick question on the PMP exam. You're a project manager and you discover the occurrence of a risk at or during, during a time close to project closure. Um, what should you do? Or a risk that you never saw come in has happened. It's a trick because a risk that you didn't see come in, it's not a risk. If it has happened, it's an issue. So you got to be ready for those curveballs where they say, a risk that you never saw coming has happened. That's not a risk. That's an issue. And if you're dealing with something that has just happened, it's not a risk. Why is it not a risk? Because a risk is what? Something that could happen. Something that is happening is not classified as a risk anymore. It's an issue. And the way you deal with an issue is with a change request. And the PMI is going to change uh, the test your exam uh, understanding of change requests, um, at best, you could say it's a workaround. And before we had insight into this, it would say, yeah, dealing with an unknown risk, there's no such thing as an unknown risk. <laughs> it's either a risk or it's an unknown, which will be known as an issue. Okay. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Good deal. All right. We got one more. The last one is very straightforward and it's called mitigate. Mitigate is a reduction in either the probability and or the impact. So when we say mitigate, you gotta be thinking like this, reducing the probability of the risks or threats to an acceptable threshold. Taking early action is often better as opposed to trying to repair the situation after the fact, which is why the answer to, to Jane's question was, do something, don't do nothing, do something. For example, adopting a less complex process, increasing the iterations of tests and quality assurance, selecting a more dependable vendor. Okay, those are all examples. Now let's read in the book because it, it always helps. It says on page 443, under mitigate, in risk mitigation, action is taken to reduce the probability of occurrence and or impact of a threat. Early mitigation action is often more effective than trying to repair the damage after the threat has occurred. Adopting less complex processes, conducting more tests, choosing a more stable seller, examples of mitigation actions. And then towards the end, it says, 
it says mitigation may involve prototype development to reduce the risk of scaling up from a bench scale model of a process or product. So these tiny little embellishments that PMI put in the PMBOK guide, they could be made into questions. So a question such as you're building a prototype to reduce the risk of scaling up from, boom, they're just giving you the answer to reduce, to reduce the risk, boom, that's mitigate. So you got to look for hallmarks of this language all throughout. All we've been doing for the past 20 minutes is talking about negative, but negative is just one side of the picture. To really get good with your risk, you got to think about being a project manager who pursues opportunities, and which is sad that a lot of companies, all they think about is the negative. They don't think about the positive, but you should. Let's do a very quick assessment. I am going to give everybody five minutes to look at this and to decide what the answer to each one is. So here's the first one. You decide to remove some of the identified work from the project scope. What response is that? Now I want you to go back to PMBOK, look at the definitions. I'm gonna give you five minutes. I'm gonna hit the pause button. And if you wanna like do this in your regular classroom collaborative style, you know, outside of Earshot, then uh, let's do that. So I'll go ahead and hit pause and I'll let you folks do your usual collaboration and then we'll come back and we'll test the validity of the answers. All right, my awesome team of students has done what they do best, collaborate, talk about it. I love the discussions. I love the interaction. And honestly, for anyone, any one of you, any one of you watching that is not in a study group like this, working with people of like mind, um, you're missing out because teamwork makes a dream work. Honestly, just hearing their different opinions, it even gives me other ideas of questions that I could write, you know, to make it even more interesting. So I quite enjoy listening in once in a while. So if you take a look at number two, we've already established number one is a removal of scope. So that's obviously a void. But if you listen to what we were talking about just before we jumped on about number two, where Shona said, yeah, I got a question about this. It's something we need to discuss more. So let's read. You send Jack. Listen to what you're asking Jack to do. You send Jack to scope out the project location. Okay. What does that do for you? Let, and I'm not saying this is the end of the story, but does scoping out the location immediately offer you any benefits? Like if someone goes to see a location, oh, I see where this is. I see that this is, um, this is not a good location. Does, have you done anything yet? No. So do we agree about that first? sentence the jack is just an observer it didn't say that jack has done anything with his observations correct yeah okay right now let's read now let's read the other part and gather data okay i gathered data this is underwater this is waterlogged by 12 inches or this has got uh, the, the soil quality is not ideal. 
okay, you gathered data, but have you done anything with it? No. Now watch this next step. Gather data to be used to deal with a risk. However, this does not tell you whether you're going to use the data before the risk happens or after the risk happens. And it doesn't tell you what kind of deal with we're talking about. You could deal with the risk by accepting it. You could deal with the risk by mitigating it. It doesn't tell you enough. So this question, we left it very ambiguous and open-ended because we wanted it to generate further controversy and discussion, just like it did. And I really enjoyed listening to what you folks were discussing. So it could be mitigated if you're using it to deal with the risk before the risk occurs. But it could also be accept if you decide, oh, let's just accept it. It's not, the soil isn't that bad. We're just going to go ahead and work with it. It could also be accept. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you got to understand the deal with is what makes it ambiguous. Because dealing with a risk could mean passive accept. It could mean active accept. It could mean mitigate. It could mean many things. So we decided to leave it at mitigate or accept at best. Okay, so this was left as a very vague question deliberately. And then everything else, which other one was there a, a little discussion about? Was it the that Drake, one? The Drake one. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Because... Drake and Rihanna were, <laughs> were sent to train. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So Drake needed to be trained to function on a project because he had a problem with his cell phone. <laughs> oh dear Drake. I thought it was um I, what did we choose? I thought it was like CAPM training is an external entity. I just remembered you saying that a few minutes ago about one of the um risk response strategies. I think that was true. Yeah, so think about it. Any kind of training, you send someone to be trained outside the firm, you send someone to be trained inside the firm. What does training do? Because if you remember what we were reading. Under the topic of risk, let's, let's read it. So I'm, I'm going to read it. It says, under mitigation, it says, um, mitigation may involve prototype development. That's just one example. Um, where it is not possible to reduce probability, a mitigation response might reduce the impact. So what you're doing in sending Drake for training, you're reducing the impact of him messing up on the project. You, you could choose not to send him for training, that will be a disaster waiting to happen. Think about it. If you're sending someone for machine shop training so that they can do better on the machine in the, uh, in the production facility, what are you doing? You're trying to reduce, you're trying, so let's talk about it from a different aspect. You're trying to increase the chances of success. But at the same time, that means you're trying to reduce the chances of failure. So sending a PM for project management training, what is that going to do? It's going to increase the chances of their success, but reduce the chances of failure. Does that make sense? Perfect. Thank you. Good. Well, You're welcome. Back, yeah, All right. Back to when you were saying about mitigation, it takes place before the risk occurs. You got it exactly. Mitigate is before the risk occurs. So I hope our friends who are watching along after the fact 
uh, enjoying this. This is an excerpt of our classes. Um, they are held in such a way that we can have some good discussion and dialogue. But part of this dialogue is the positive. I have not talked about the positive risks or the opportunities. And the mnemonic for this is very easy. <laughs> no pun intended. E-A-S-E-E. -E. And that stands for escalate, accept, share. And then you have the two E's in quick succession, exploit and enhance. We're going to talk about these one by one. So let's reverse and talk about E. We already know escalate. Escalate to a higher authority. Oh, there's a possibility that we could we could have a windfall on this on this endeavor. We, you know, the company could win billions of dollars. Okay. So we're not talking about this current project. You're saying there's an opportunity for us to do similar projects for this client. Yes. Okay. Well, that is not applicable to this project. You need to escalate that to the sales team, to senior management, let them go chase that down. Does that make sense when I say escalate? Yes. Yes. Good deal. Good deal. All right. So that's one down. Let's talk about the next one, which is accept. So when you take a look at accept, when you take a look at accept, it says, do nothing. Oh, there's an opportunity we could win billions of dollars from this client. Yeah, but we don't have the bandwidth to pursue it. So you do nothing. That's passive. Or you say, uh, well, let's put aside some contingency reserve. Uh, if it occurs, then at least we've put aside some half a million dollars to uh, begin working on it. So that's just accept. You're not running after the opportunity. You're not getting all excited and doing anything proactive. You're like, well, if it happens, it happens. Does that make sense for positive accept? Yeah. It's a reactive still, yeah? Okay. The next one is the S for share. Oh, there's an opportunity that this byproduct from the project we're actually working on an adhesive for the aerospace industry. And we have this mix of some remnant product. We've already got the adhesive for the, the body of the plane, the wings and everything else. It's like military grade, commercial grade adhesive. But we've got this remnant mixture. Um, you know, we could actually do something with it. Why don't we set up a special purpose company to look into what we could do with this. It's a little bit weaker. Um, it's a weaker adhesive, but maybe there's some use for it. So you set up a special purpose company and they discover, well, you know, this could be used for something like post-it notes. So you set up a special purpose company so that the benefits of that byproduct are not just gonna lie fallow, but you're going to realize some benefits. And that's how the birth of the 3M post-it note came on the scene. But do you understand that when we say share, you are sharing some or all? Let's read what PMI says. It becomes very clear when you read PMI's definition under opportunities on page 444. It says, sharing involves transfer of ownership of an opportunity to a third party so that it shares some of the benefit if the opportunity occurs. It is important to select the new owner of a shared opportunity carefully 
so they are best able to capture the opportunity for the benefit of the project. Risk sharing often involves payment of a risk premium to the party taking on the opportunity. Examples of sharing actions include forming risk sharing partnerships, teams, special purpose companies, like in my example, I just gave you a special purpose company where we formed a special purpose company to be able to take that to the next level. Or maybe it's a joint venture or it's a partnership where you're taking the opportunity and saying, hey, we discovered this, take this, run with this, we're going to have a split. And it doesn't have to be a 50-50. Sharing could be a 10% for you, 90 for them. But the bottom line is someone's working it and you're going to have some of the benefits at the end. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Good deal. All right. That's your share. The next one we're going to talk about is a mirror image. So I want you to think about the concept of the mirror imagery of risk. And we're going to go to the whiteboard to do this. So we've already talked about the negative, right? We have the negative risks or threats, and then we have the positive risks or the opportunities. And then we had a team. Well, you have the opposite of these, or I should say the mirror images of these. So in the world of positive, if we're saying A is for avoid, and let's make it clear because there are two A's. If we say avoid, we're saying exploit on the side of the positive. The opposite of avoid is exploit. How? Well, avoid is taking the probability or impact to zero. Exploit is taking the probability or impact to 100. This is saying there is no way under the sun that this positive risk right here is not going to hit us full force. We want this to happen, and we're going to make it happen. And by the time we're done, there's no way this isn't going to happen. It's like putting yourself in front of the train of opportunity to hit you full force. Tie me to the tracks. Come on, opportunity. Hit me. Hit me hard. Hit me. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the visual, right? So exploit is taking the positive risk to a hundred. There is no way this isn't going to happen. There is no way we're not going to win the contract. How, how do you know? How do you know? Well, we made the deal so sweet. It's impossible. We've pretty much given so much value that there's no way we're not going to win this deal. Okay, let's read for clarity. I'll read for you here in Pembok Guide under Opportunities, page 445. Uh, that's the wrong one, page 444, beg your pardon, exploit. It says the exploit strategy may be selected for high priority opportunities where the organization wants to ensure that the opportunity is realized. This strategy seeks to capture the benefit associated with a particular opportunity by ensuring that it definitely happens, increasing the probability of the occurrence to a hundred percent. It's a fun strategy. And it feels good when you actually exploited that risk. It feels good when you do that. And every project manager needs to have that as a response 
Examples of exploiting responses may include assigning an organization's most talented resources to the project to reduce the time to completion, or using new technologies or technology upgrades to reduce cost and duration. So ChatGPT is a brilliant example of how you can exploit. You just make things happen for, sh there's no way. If you know how to use the tool, there's some things that I would have said, you know, uh, I don't know if I can finish this in, in, in 20 days. Now with GPT, because I know how to harness the tool, I can make promises to do things like that. And it feels so good when you're able to exploit opportunities. Anyway, that's my own funny world, geeking out on risk. But let's move on. If you kind of get the idea about exploit, I want to give you the other mirror images. The other mirror images for the transfer, its share, right? The E is escalate. So it's, an again, another escalate. Same thing, another E for escalate. The A for accept, it's another accept, not much different except it's a mirror image. And the M, this is where you have the weak link of enhance. Enhance is where you are increasing the probability or impact, but it's not like exploit. Exploit is you obliterate the competition. That's exploit. That's exploit. I have many colorful examples, but I don't want to offend Google, so I won't say anything else. But I've got some examples of AI and how Google, Google, where are you? All right. So this is share, we've talked about share. This is escalate, we've talked about escalate on both sides. This is escalate here, and this is accept, and this is mitigate. So let's talk about the last one. People often get enhanced and exploit mixed up. And you wanna know the main difference? One is taking it to a hundred, that is the exploit. You're taking it to one, zero, zero. This one enhance is like a weak, weaker version, weaker, weaker, weaker version. It's not as aggressive, right? You're not taking the probability or the impact to 100. No. So it's weak. It's weak. But it's better than nothing. So let's read what PMI say about enhance. It says, the strategy enhance, page 444, is used to increase the probability and or impact of an opportunity. Early enhancement action is often more effective than trying to improve the benefit after the opportunity has occurred. The probability of occurrence of an opportunity may be increased by focusing attention on its causes where it is not possible to increase probability An enhancement response might increase the impact by targeting factors that drive the size of the potential benefits. And they give examples like adding more resources to an activity to finish early. Have you increased the probability? Yes, but it's not your best. If you wanted to make it exploit, you should have added the best in the company. Then would have said, even with our eyes closed, you're gonna, it's like saying, all right, I'm gonna use, oh, I'm sorry, Google. <laughs> I'm gonna use Bard to get this work done. Uh, okay, it's enhanced. But if I say I'm gonna use chat GPT, for creating a schedule, for building a WBS, that's more like exploit because you know it won't fail. It'll do it for you in seconds. All right, enough said. Did that give you some insight into the mirror images and the positive? Any questions? Any concerns? 
Okay. Well, I think that was time well spent, my friends. But thank you very much for that. Thank you for asking the questions. Did I miss one last question that everybody had in the very beginning, or did I hit them all? Was there one more question? I thought there was one more. Did I did I get everything? I think we got it then. All right, yeah. my friends. Yeah, I think you touched on everything. I wasn't okay. in the beginning, though. So. Oh, okay, no problem. Also, I think we got it. I think it was just those. But if anything ever comes up, do let me know. For those people watching after the fact, this is how we roll. This is my esteemed group of students who are working. Even though we have many who are playing trance, they're not here. They're supposed to be. But many, hey, those of you who are running away from the group, I, I got my eye on you. I know. I know where you I know where you're at. I just hope that you're doing your bit because this is a behemoth. Now, for those who are looking at process groups or practice guide, it's not bad. But just remember that the details at the back of the book, it's the same thing. This is really the same thing as process groups or practice guide. It just has a different coat of paint. Same building. All right, my friends, that's it. Thank you very much to the students. And thank you very much for those watching. Uh, we're going to move on to something else now.